the time has now come for us all to do more. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So there aren't many announcements that get us all tuning into the news at the same time these days. But this was one few people missed. That is why people will only be allowed to leave their home for the following very limited purposes. The moment when we, and probably he, Britain's Prime Minister, realised it was all frighteningly real. A relentless rise in COVID admissions. How long can you keep going that way? physical and mental load is is huge. It became very scary. Families every day are continuing to lose loved ones. We knew it was coming. The World Health Organization published its first pandemic plan in 1999. The UK had also planned for it, but we weren't prepared. What on earth happened? And what does that story tell us more broadly about why we failed to prevent catastrophe? This is the Catastrophe Podcast. I'm Jill Koenig, a consultant working in high hazard industries to develop the leadership and culture needed to prevent the worst from happening. In 2017, I watched horrified as fire destroyed the tower block opposite mine. 72 people lost their lives as London's Grenfell Tower burned. I felt helpless grief-stricken, desperately sad. Because these disasters don't just happen, we create them. That's why I wanted to make this podcast and write the book that accompanies it. To apply what I know about safety and change. To speak to other experts and frontline workers. To expose how our established ways of thinking and working cause catastrophes. And ultimately, to show how we can all prevent them if we change our approach. And with me is Matthew Price, a journalist who I first met when he was with the BBC covering the Grainful Fire. He's now at Sky News. Hi, Matthew. Jill, when you first started writing your book in February 2020, what was it called? Grenfell and Systemic Change. And now it's called... Catastrophe and Systemic Change. Why Why did you change the title? Do you know, I was actually meant to be in Italy the week after the shutdown had been announced. So obviously we couldn't travel. So I took the time to continue writing the book. And I was obviously at the very early stages then. And... I kept seeing in the news exactly the same issues playing out with the pandemic as the things that I discovered that led to Grenfell. You know, the failure to practice chronic unease, the lack of leadership, the failure to provide the frontline workers with sufficient PPE to listen to what they were saying. So it felt to me like the message was much broader than Grenfell. And you mentioned the frontline workers there. I mean, you've talked a lot to me over the years since we first met in the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower fire. Um, And we also discussed it in our earlier episode on air, the importance of listening to the frontline workers, which is something we will explore in this episode. But what's the big picture on that? 
I think there's often a misunderstanding about why it's important to listen to the front line and it gets caught up in moral arguments about it being a good thing to do. So we should listen to residents because that's morally right. What we fail to understand is that people that work at the coalface, whether it be residents who live in high-rise buildings or nurses or doctors at the front line of a pandemic, have tacit knowledge about what's going on that's absolutely critical to safety. And if we don't tap into that knowledge, we stand no chance of preventing catastrophes. Two people who were in that position in the pandemic are Shadira Ota, a junior doctor, and Louise Curtis, a nurse. Louise has co-written a book called A Nurse's Story, My Life in A&E During the COVID Crisis. And we'll start with Louise when she first realised that there was a problem. My brother-in-law lives out in China. And so he was sending messages on our sort of group saying about this um, virus that was coming about. And he was sort of saying, oh, this is all being blown out of proportion. This is nothing. But he was talking about the restrictions that were coming into place. And then it was sort of a, a few weeks down the line that we then started to hear about our first couple of cases that came in to the UK. And it was sort of just mentioned as a hush hush, you know, don't sort of talk to everybody about it. But yes, it has now come over to England. And then it went from that to within a couple of weeks, again, sort of at the beginning of April, we were sort of really in the thick of it. And then it all just blew out of proportion, I think. I mean, what you're describing um, basically mirrors, I think, my experience as well. So I think I first heard of COVID like around January in a newspaper that was like a very small article and like several pages in about something going on in Wuhan. And then I remember it must have been around March as well that we first had we had a few cases in my hospital. It was literally within the space of a few days. I went back down to A&E and they were building essentially a new door to split our A&E into what is now called red or blue, but I guess at the time was clean or dirty. And I was like, this seems a bit excessive. They are literally building a, a new door to keep everybody separate and you couldn't go through without certain things on and you had to do a whole process. Um, and then I remember later on that week, we had um, a doffing and donning tutorial, which is how we were taught to put on the protective equipment. And I was like, this all seems almost military-esque in terms of, that just ramping up of organisation, you know, this very formal process of you have to have a buddy when you put on your PPE so that you can make sure you've done it properly. And then I think the point at which it kind of hit me was, um, so we used to have sort of weekly teaching in my department. I was in the general surgery department as a very junior doctor. And they essentially explained within this meeting that actually all of the doctors at sort of my level and below were going to have to be moved to ITU and we're going to have a sort of crash course in intensive care medicine because the need was far greater for us there and because of the impact of what was likely coming, the work in my department was going to be very significantly cut down. Um, and I think once I realised, even at that point, kind of preemptively the steps that were being taken, because I don't think our burden was quite so high, but it was clear that we were preparing for something. I think that's when I started to get quite, uh, I guess, nervous about what was coming and realised that this isn't going to be one or two cases. This hospital is essentially preparing to be overwhelmed. Were the changes that were coming in, were they being sort of directed from the top or were they coming in as a result of people on the ground having to think for themselves at that moment? 
I think particularly at the beginning, there was quite a flattening of the hierarchy because a lot of the changes were happening to the most junior staff because the consultants were remaining typically within their uh, positions because you need the most senior staff to remain within their specialty regardless of how quiet it is. Whereas a lot of us juniors who um, were on rotational programmes anyway were moved quite quickly. So those initial orders for you know these juniors to be moved to intensive care or to be moved to medicine or to be moved to A&E came from the top. But then we were very quickly given feedback with regard to, you know, we need more teaching on this or actually you need to send far more people to this area and be fewer to this place or we need to completely revamp the rotor because we don't have enough cover. So I think it was definitely a mix where there was a lot of feedback. There were almost daily meetings at the beginning where sort of forums were being held where the seniors were there but then it was very much the juniors being like this is exactly what we've experienced in the past literally 24 48 hours this is what has worked this is what hasn't and the changes were were literally happening daily if not more than that at the beginning so I think there were a lot of changes that were happening across the hospital so there were changes within our department in that we had to suddenly create two A&Es. So we had our A&E that was still sort of caring and receiving patients who were having heart attacks and strokes and ruptured aneurysms and overdoses and all of our sort of non-COVID but typical A&E patients. So we still had to run a normal business. And then we had to create an entirely new A&E that was catering for just sort of our A&E patients. So we were running two departments simultaneously. And that change sort of all happened within our department. So it was us that were making the changes because we knew how our department worked best. We knew the sort of the the logistics of it and the different units that that could be adapted and changed. Chidera, I wonder how you felt when, as a junior doctor, I mean, really still in training, when you were sent into this environment in March into the ITU? If I'm honest, I was very, very scared and quite anxious. Um, ITU, I think, has always been a scary part of the hospital for me because it is where the sickest people go to. And therefore, in my mind, it's where the smartest, cleverest doctors are based with all these sort of magical medical things that I know very little about and I know very little about how to use. So I think knowing that I was going to ITU in particular was very, very um, nerve wracking. I think luckily when we arrived, the team there were probably aware of how we were feeling and what we were going into. So the reception that we received was incredibly warm. Um, We were very quickly brought onto the ward to shadow. And I have to say that particularly the ITU nurses, um, there are a few that essentially (laughs) took me under their wing as kind of like mother figures almost who... um, put so much time and effort into making sure that we were comfortable and we knew how to do things. I think the camaraderie was greater than I've ever really experienced within the NHS. It was such a fast-moving environment and everybody was learning as this thing progressed. Were you getting the right advice and guidance from the top? I think what was quite surprising about COVID was the rapid deterioration that was possible in patients who were normally fit and well and and very young. So I think that was quite difficult. And a lot of it, I think I particularly found I was very much learning on the job. It was an evolving process. And I was learning essentially from the patients that I'd seen earlier that day or the day before and how they'd responded to treatment. And, And I think 
that sort of information that my senior colleagues had sort of would be would be shared um, throughout the shift would be shared sort of as a learning education process sort of at the beginning of every shift people would talk about cases that they'd cared for and sort of how the patients responded so it was very much a sort of learning day by day as as things developed the sort of interdepartmental support was really incredible and I think we had doctors for example orthopedics who were coming down to the department to support us because a lot of their elective procedures were cancelled so we were very quickly learning that you know people deteriorated so rapidly and people needed to be put on life-saving ventilation very quickly those decisions you couldn't mess around with you needed to to act quickly and so the way that sort of different specialities were coming down and helping us in A&E was was really incredible. That'll be music to your ears, Jill, in many ways. The fact that there is this sense of people learning together and feeding in best practice as they understand it at the time. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, just listening to both of you, is it's kind of the agility, responsiveness, listening, feedback loops, um, levelling of the hierarchy. That's where best practice lives. I'd be interested in your views of how helpful government policies or edicts were in terms of either adding barriers or removing barriers to that you know, immediate learning that you needed to do and obviously did do. I think one thing that I took away from this is that when you have something that is that fast paced, you need a short feedback loop. And I think that is the crux of maybe where there were some issues with the response. When things are literally changing, as Louise has mentioned, two or three times a shift, if you imagine this feedback loop going from the shop floor to the government is a very long loop. Um, and it's a long loop that multiple trusts, multiple hospitals will be taking part in. So it's very slow. Whereas going from the shop floor to the consultant who's the director of that department, quick. And I think, again, when we look at the structure of the NHS, it's rarely run centrally. We are split into multiple trusts and each trust will have their own way of doing things, which means that when we suddenly have this centrally driven action that in of itself is quite slow because of the way the NHS is designed, it can lead to delays and it can lead to confusion. And I do think it's, it is useful, for example, when we need to do things like getting very large contracts with PPE or reflecting the evidence, because an evidence base, of course, requires a very large number of participants, which is what you get when you have a national health service like what we have. But I think for these sort of immediate quick changes that were literally happening daily, if not more, and were necessary to improve patient treatment, um, those happening locally, I think, is what I found the most valuable because it's just it was the only way to do it at the speed that was required. Louise, any other reflections from you on that? So I'm not really sure sort of what government policies there were with regards to sort of medical management. I, I don't think I've sort of particularly found anything useful with regards to their policies about sort of lockdown and restrictions. I think it was just decisions were made too late, in my opinion. Um and I think the second wave was inevitable. Uh, we knew it was coming. And yet I think the decision to um, put back in place the restrictions was just too little, too late. I mean, it was difficult because obviously this is the word of the year, I expect, unprecedented. You know, none of this was anything that anyone had really experienced or knew about. So on the one hand, I 
you know, tried to respect the fact that the government was likely trying to respond to something that they didn't understand very much, um, that they had little experience of. But on the other hand, it did sometimes feel like those at the top were trying to implement things that were not even possible or did, or did not seem possible um, within the trusts. Um, and there were some things where it just felt like, I don't think the person who's made this decision has ever worked in an NHS hospital, or at very least has definitely not worked in my hospital because I don't know how this is going to work here. And that was quite frustrating, but it was, I guess, within the context of understanding that as we were likely feeling overwhelmed, I expect the Department of Health was also feeling very overwhelmed. And... Um... When I started writing the book, I, I, I was really getting into writing it right at the beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, February, March last year. And it was originally just going to be around Grenfell. But then um, I started reading up about COVID and about how it was the highest ranked risk in the world um, and in the country, but nobody seems to have been prepared. I mean, I don't know how many global deaths we're on right now. What are your reflections on that this was actually a known risk that wasn't well prepared for um, versus some surprising event that nobody expected? So I think a big part that I think will hopefully come out of this is humility. Um, I think particularly with regard to pandemics, they're the sort of thing that people think of that happen in, you know, um, developing countries. You wouldn't expect to see this in the West, et cetera, et cetera. And I think realistically that maybe that is part of why we responded to this the way that we did. Um, I think this was seen as something that was happening in China. And I think the idea that this is something that could happen in the UK um, seemed far-fetched, even when the risk was known. Um, and I think it's important, and I hope that this government will take from this the humility of just accepting that literally anything can happen anywhere. Um, and I think as staff, as, as the government, as, as a country, I think with regard to this pandemic, I think something that we should take from it is that if, if there's a risk, regardless of how unlikely it seems it can happen here, regardless of how prepared we may feel, it's important to make sure that we have things in place to mitigate some of that risk, because I think the issue is that we were kind of caught, um, for lack of a better phrase, with our pants down. So the thing that stands out for me is how frontline workers are absolutely amazing and agile and adapt to unfolding situations. And mostly they do this absolutely brilliantly, as we've just heard. But they can only hold off catastrophe for a bit. Because if upper levels can't pre-plan, and if they can't adapt as flexibly as the front line during a crisis, it's all going to fall apart. And I've seen that in my work and there's one particular example that sticks out for me, which was with an organization that was experiencing some pretty major safety issues where they were leaving what are called high-risk defects when they were installing something. And the company had punished the frontline workers. They'd gone through all the normal disciplinary routes 
and none of that made any difference. But when the leaders started changing and started listening and started understanding the barriers that the frontline experienced to doing their work properly and made changes by simplifying procedures, removing heavy production targets, safety performance improved and was sustained dramatically. The UK hasn't seen a crisis that's so completely taken hold like the pandemic did since the Second World War. The whole of society is affected to it by a greater or lesser extent. So we wanted to talk about the politics of this and the missteps, but also the underlying structural problems that mean we as a country were never perhaps equipped to deal with such a pandemic, including the type of people that we have as leaders and also how a lack of empathy might play a huge part. We brought together two big thinkers in this whole area, Jill Rutter, who's a senior research fellow at UK in a changing Europe, and David Alexander, a professor of risk reduction at UCL. David has been researching in this area since 1980. I've been studying disasters for just over 40 years, and the last 10 or 11 months have felt like seeing my entire career flash past, speeded up. I went to a symposium on the 17th of November 2008. At this, an epidemiologist stood up and for 45 minutes recited the scenario for a viral pandemic. What happened last year and this year has been the exact replica of what he said. I think that you know one of the problems was that the government was too fixated for too long on its plans for the flu pandemic. Uh, if you read the National Risk Assessment, it had dismissed the possibility of a SARS-like disease emerging from the Far East as a very low risk event as compared to high impact, high risk, which was a flu pandemic. And I think it was taken aback when the measures it had prepared, if you like, to activate in the event of a flu pandemic uh, proved to be the wrong measures and the wrong approach for, you know, if you like, the wrong sort of pandemic when their assumption that a SARS-style disease would be stopped before it had any significant impact within the UK, which was the lesson they took out of Canada's experience with um, SARS back in the early 2000s. There are no emergency planners, risk managers, emergency managers on SAGE. So what we find as a result is that scientists with expertise in virology or epidemiology and politicians are acting as emergency managers. I don't think that that is right. Many of the problems of COVID are logistical ones. We need proper emergency managers with the right background and training. It's not an easy thing to manage an emergency. But where David is absolutely right is that it is a long-established weakness of policy-making, decision-making in the UK government that we are better at talking a good game 
writing strategy documents and producing policies than we are in translating them into actual clear-cut deliverables on the ground. There has always been an implementation gap. And if you're sitting there as a minister, you are a politician. You know you have a choice. You can be, if you like, paying quite a big insurance premium against a disaster that you hope won't happen and you think you'll be quite unlucky happens on your watch. Or you can take the immediate flack for you know, rising waiting lists, poor levels of current service. I think the really interesting question is how has that calculation within government changed and will people now be prepared to invest in spare capacity? It is, if you like, the sort of problem of dealing with these things within democracies is that we suffer from what I think the economists call time inconsistency. You know, you pay the costs up front and you only see the benefits long term. And in case of disaster management, you hope actually you never see the benefits because it's much better to avoid the disaster internally in the first place. One thing you know in business continuity is that you have to safeguard the reputation of the company or yourself or whatever it takes to stop the investors pulling out or the stock value going down and stuff. But you can only do that if you can actually bring the crisis under control. If instead you're spinning a story that simply isn't true because the crisis is out of control, then the whole edifice is bound to come toppling down. They did not stock enough personal protective equipment, but there were alternatives to that. For example, accelerated manufacturing contracts. And what do we find instead? A rather random trawl around the world. And then the manufacturer of PPE in Turkey, it arrives one month late and is immediately condemned because it's not up to standard. 400,000 gowns. At the same time, people are getting COVID because they don't have PPE in hospitals. I think actually doing more advanced thinking about if we're confronted this, what are our options? So as David was saying, you've got a bigger set of options to draw on. Do we have to have giant stockpiles or is there something else? Do we have factories we will effectively requisition to make this stuff if we need it? Those are some of the things that you could have said. David, let me ask, you've been working in the disaster field since the 1980s and the wealth of experience that you have and the diversity of thought around you must be utterly incredible. What, in your opinion, should government have done to cope with the pandemic? Well, in the first place, we don't have an adequate civil protection system. Uh, This is really the heart of the matter. A proper civil protection system will be well articulated at the local level. It will be harmonised at the regional level and it will be managed as a system at the national level. What we find instead is that years of starving local authorities of funds, also the failure to make emergency planning and management a profession and to install it properly, have meant that the expertise has been wasted Moreover, it shows that there are serious faults in the system as conceived. Uh, The same is actually true in France, which is also over-centralised and has also managed the pandemic very badly. 
But it really struck me as amazing that the Civil Contingencies Act of 2004 was sidelined when COVID came along. All countries should have, and many countries do have, a basic law which specifies the system for managing major emergencies, how it works, and in broadest terms, who does what. We haven't planned, we haven't programmed, and those are things that are perfectly feasible with or without ministerial participation, but only if the system exists adequately. One final thing to note is secrecy, which has been a major, major problem. But we need a civil protection system that is inclusive, that involves many, many more women, many more minorities, that represents the population well and is responsive to them. It is not impossible because other countries have it. I can feel this coming back to your world, Jill. Yeah, it's really um, moving, actually, listening to the conversation. So it's a little bit off topic, but um, one of the... intentions in writing the book is to stimulate this type of conversation, particularly amongst people from differing fields, because it's not one expert that's going to solve this. So actually just listening to that interaction was pretty, pretty moving um, for me. I think I'm super interested, David, in your point about um, transparency, about telling the truth. Uh, I I think there's, you know, trust and deception. It's actually more not not so much transparency because there's so much information. I think it's, it's more around trust and not deceiving people. And certainly in my own experience as a citizen going through the pandemic, so if I don't take into account writing or thinking about it systemically, is I just feel like I'm being duped the whole time. Do you know, it's like I, I make my own decisions, I do my own risk assessment, I decide what I'm going to do based on the information I have, and frankly, what the government spins me, I just ignore. And I think that's quite interesting, but it never gets looked at, is I suspect a lot of the response to the pandemic is actually people looking at their own individual risk and assessing that and responding appropriately, which I think they're doing quite well. But the government thinks it's down to their wonderful communication, and I, I just don't think it is. <laughs> I see David shaking his head there. Well, I don't think the communication has been good at all. We've had at least 15 major U-turns. It is perfectly understood that you have to vary the decision-making according to a very dynamic and unstable situation. But nevertheless, um, actually, this has been true in many other countries as well. Uh, One of the problems is that you simply cannot foist decisions on people with no notice. Many small businesses simply can't afford that, particularly in the catering, hospitality type business. Um, I do believe there are alternatives, a little more care over these things, a little more consideration, a little more weighing up of the alternatives. But this really brings us back to the the fact that it isn't merely a question of epidemiology and virology. It's also a question of weighing up things. The distinction between favouring the economy and favouring the um, restriction of the virus is somewhat false because favouring the restriction of the virus does favour the economy. If we all get sick, then the economy is not going to be in good shape and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, um, I think there have been cases where decisions have been made in far too light a way, 
with far too little consideration of the consequences of them. But the consequences are very easy to ascertain before, during and after. Uh, so there is a question of learning lessons. A learnt lesson is something in which there is measurable positive change to prove that it is learnt. That's what we need to see more of. And Jill Rutter, uh, because Jill Koenig and I, in our next episode, we're going to be talking about blame and we're going to be talking about the way in which politics and the media intersect to create this environment where perhaps arguably it's hard to learn lessons. I just wonder, maybe nudging ahead to that sort of idea, whether you think there's a sort of different environment that we all need to foster in order to help learn the lessons that David's talking about? Well, it's usually not very positive when you get into a conversation about who's to blame for things. That's usually a bit inimical to people sitting back and saying, look, we've all been doing these things under very stressful circumstances. What actually do we collectively agree we could have done rather better and we will do differently next time. As David said, that's actually the critical thing is that you not only just sit and do a sort of bit of a retrospective, you actually work out what would we do differently next time. It's quite, you know, various people have said it is actually the sort of time to do a sort of rapid lessons review because you may be hit by another wave. I thought David's point actually that was really, really interesting, and I think this is something that the government suffered from really quite badly, is the lack of diversity in decision-making. We've had a lot of people, Amber Rudd, various other people, Caroline Noakes, uh, the chair of the Women's and Equalities Committee in the Commons, pointing to how blokey this government is. This is a government of a certain sort of you know, white man. It doesn't really, I think, have enough ability to empathise or imagine what it's like if you're a low-paid single mother cooped up in a small flat with kids trying to do their school lessons on a phone and things like that. And it seems to be very, very bad at understanding how this is for lots and lots of people out there and what it needs to do to make the management of this pandemic much more tolerable for them. And I think there's a really interesting thing there. There was some talks early on about whether, you know, Boris Johnson should invite Keir Starmer in to be part of the decision-making process. And I actually thought, no, he doesn't need Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer's basically quite a lot like them, might be rather more competent to actually run a big organisation. But he actually, you know, comes from that sort of background as well. The sort of people that actually I thought, if you're bringing any politicians in who would actually help give a bit more diversity decision-making, you actually want to bring in Angela Rayner, Jess Phillips, some of those people who you actually felt could actually say, no, if you're living on a sort of, you know, estate with no green space and stuff like that, this is what it's like. This is actually what we need to cater for and do that. But I do think it it raises the question about we don't actually have the structures in place to learn. So, Though one of the things that is very interesting, I think, in this process has been the much more active role of Parliament in seeing itself as something that can actually force the government to learn. And and I think we have actually seen some really quite interestingly innovative working by select committees, most notably Jeremy Hunt's Health Select Committee. But what we don't have, and maybe this is one for the House of Lords, we don't have anything picking up sort of David's cross-cutting theme of, you know, general capability for emergency response because we organise things in departments. 
In any disaster, crisis or emergency, no matter how large it is, the theater of operations is the local area. Um, it was suggested to me by a select committee member who was an MP that we should call in a general, manage COVID. The army could do it far better than civilians. Well, firstly, I have great respect for the army. I love working with them. However, they have other things to do. They are also slimmed down with respect to how they were before. They usually do not have the local knowledge, whereas local authorities certainly ought to and surely do. And moreover, I think really this should be a civilian responsibility and handing it over to the army is shirking responsibility. Apart from that, it's a model that's 50 years out of date. Essentially, the civilianization of civil protection has gone on unimpeded for more than half a century around the world. Danger, of course, is that the government will look at the bit that has worked relatively well in the UK, which has been the very centralised NHS rollout of the vaccine and look at you know some of the problems that more federated structures have had with that and take exactly the reverse message out, which is that actually when it comes through a system we control, it works well. You know, in each of the interviews, Jill, there's been this moment when I've thought, that's what Jill's been going on about these last few years as, as we've chatted about this topic and around this topic. And, and this time, the thing that stood out for me in listening to Jill and David was when she talked about empathy. And she talked about the ability of those in charge to actually empathise and understand how policies, how decisions can impact different people in different ways. And really, I guess there, there, there needs to be in the best governments and the best organisations a really holistic way of looking at things. And you know, Matthew, I wonder how often we think about the role that empathy has to play in preventing catastrophe. And on that note, I'd like to go back to Louise and Shadira and look and see how the pandemic has changed them. From a personal point of view, I think initially, probably quite naively, I felt almost sort of um, immune, I guess. I'm in my 30s um, with no health problems. And I think initially sort of everybody thought COVID was just affecting the more vulnerable of our population. But when I started caring for patients who were dying and were younger than me with no health problems, that really was quite overwhelmingly terrifying. And I think then having to deal with those emotions and that fear of not so much for myself, but it was more the fear of bringing it home to my husband. And I think that was that was something that was really difficult to deal with. And then managing sort of my own anxieties about that and sort of recognising my own mental well-being is something I've definitely taken from the last year and a half understanding and recognising when I think my mental health has taken a bit of a battering that's something I'm definitely, I think, a lot better and more in tune with now. I actually felt very lucky in some aspects because a lot of my, for example, my housemate at the time was working from home and so lost essentially most of her social life. Whereas I was working in this incredibly collaborative environment with people who will remain important to me probably for the rest of my life because of the experiences that we've shared. And I think just that 
understanding of just how important the people around you are, even though I should have had that regardless. But that was something that I think I will take away from this experience. Mm. The final thing from my perspective is, you know, I sometimes find you don't have words to express things. So everything that you're saying just resonates a lot with me and whatever I've gone through. Um, But I love the memorial that's emerging (laughs) with all the hearts on embankment. And sometimes I think um, these kind of symbols can express something deep that we can't really put into words. But just as, as you're speaking, one of the things I'm very interested in is about the role of grief and kind of leaning into the pain. I mean, I try to imagine what frontline workers have gone through during the pandemic and I do not just have enormous, enormous gratitude and respect. But I think there's also something about how do we come out of it stronger and what are the what are the things that we need to do so that we don't just, you know, shove everything under the carpet and then have mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera, later on. So just if you if you look forward based on your own experiences, just any reflections, thoughts, advice, um, learnings that you think would be helpful for people? Um, so I guess for me, like I'm someone who's actually dealt with anxiety for quite a few years. Um, so I guess ironically, when the pandemic hit, I could recognise some of those symptoms within myself quite easily because I'd experienced them before. Um, and I had some coping mechanisms in place already because I'd basically been dealing with this for some time but I'd say that I mean since the pandemic um I mean I have a therapist now um I'm very open with you know select friends and family about what I've been through and I think recognizing when you're struggling and kind of doing as best you can to remove any sort of shame or stigma from that and finding the people that you can be open and vulnerable with is incredibly important I think um for me, the biggest part is just, and I think, again, the pandemic helped because in a way we have this entire workforce that we kind of realised we're going through something that was very traumatic. So I think discussions about mental health and emotional well-being were kind of pushed very early on, I feel, to the forefront of the workplace. And so we were having very open and frank conversations with someone that you'd worked with for half a day um, in the middle of ITU on your break because... It was just it was just so obvious that no one was really okay. As Chajira said, I think that the well-being of our workforce has has been really challenged, as it has for the general population. I think the impact of this pandemic is probably still yet to unfold. And really, I think we've been pushed to our limit. And I think a lot of people have probably hit exhaustion and the risk of burnout is probably the highest it's ever been. And I think our trust response to staff well-being was incredible. Um, All of the changes and and things and extra support that was put in place was fantastic. But I just, you know, that needs to continue. And I think we need to continue to be aware and look after our staff. I'm so glad that Louise and Shadira and their organisations appear to be talking about mental health For me, that journey has been complex over the last four years. And when we look at the pandemic, 
and the number of deaths globally, I believe we need to look at mental health and understand how it can help us learn and drive change. We also started to speak a bit there about blame and politics and the media's role. And that's what we will turn to next in episode five. We've been talking a lot about how companies and how how government can create the conditions for catastrophe either to be avoided or to be created. But there's a wider foundation to all of this. And we're going to listen to a real insider's perspective on that structural underpinning of how we can fail to learn from disasters. Catastrophe was hosted by Matthew Price and me, Jill Koenig, author of Catastrophe and Systemic Change. It's a Mother Come Quickly production and sponsored by my company, JMJ Associates. If you enjoyed it, do feel free to share with friends and colleagues. And of course, if you'd like to write a review, I'd love to see your thoughts.